Well, good morning, everybody. And for those of you who weren't here last week, Happy New Year. We are in the month of January now. Finally feels like January a little bit after that nice warm uh, time of weather that we had over the last uh, week or so of the new year. But I'm just really pleased, really happy to see everybody here this morning. And uh, we are getting ready to celebrate a new year. I want to remind everybody that the last Sunday of this month, January 29th, is our annual council meeting. This is where uh, members of the church will be voting on certain decisions, certain things that uh, we are looking forward to doing in 2023. But that doesn't mean you have to be a member of the church in order to attend the meeting, in order to be involved in the discussions. We would love to have everybody here. Uh, usually we uh, will set up a lunch uh, prior to the meeting. So right after service, we'll go up into the social hall, have some lunch and then come back and conduct some of the business of the church. So hopefully you can get that on your calendar and be able to make it uh, on January 29th. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York. Anybody ever heard that line before? Now is the winter of our discontent. It's from William Shakespeare. It's from a play called Richard III, and it actually opens the play. And last week, I was, I was kind of walking around and looking at the decorations and everything and, and uh, watching uh, Kathy as she was trying to get the uh, snowflakes hung in the vestibule back there. And the, this line kind of ran through my mind. Now is the winter of our discontent. And of course, it was 53 degrees at the time, so really not very discontented with winter at that point. But how many of you feel sometimes like you are discontented with winter? How many of you hate snow? How many of you hate cold? Yeah, we, we, kind of, we, we kind of don't like winter sometimes. It's cold, there's snow, there's ice. The kids love it because sometimes they get off from school because of, of the snow or the ice. Sometimes uh, so, some worse things happen. Power goes out in our homes, our, our pipes freeze up and we don't have running water. All of these things can make us um, discontented with winter. But there's also something else that kind of comes along with winter. Doctors um, talk about this sadness that comes along when, when winter comes along. And they call this seasonal affective disorder or sad, which I think is a really clever uh, name for that. They say that sad can happen at any time of year with the change of any season, but most of the time it happens in the, as we enter the winter months. And they say that people experience low energy, there's difficulty concentrating. Sometimes people have feelings of worthlessness or hopelessness or guilt that they just kind of, because we're just inside and we're not around a lot of people, a lot of times we just kind of sit and think about all of these things and we kind of get sad, we kind of get depressed sometimes during this time. And one of the most popular therapies for SAD is this thing called light therapy. And 
They think sad happens because, you know, the, there's not a lot of sunlight over the year or over the season and people don't go out as much. And if they go out, they're all covered up. So the light doesn't have the opportunity to penetrate the skin and, you know, just kind of get you more energy. So what they'll do is they will shine lights. They will take these, these big lights that are supposed to simulate sunlight and you sit in there and you, you know, kind of get in your bathing suit or your shorts and your t-shirts and you sit in the light for an hour. And that's supposed to help with this seasonal affective disorder. Well, this winter, instead of focusing on the discontentment that comes from the winter, I want us to flip things around a little bit. This morning, we're going to start a new journey through a sermon series called The Winter of Our Contentment. And this is going to be a walk through the book of Philippians. And over the coming weeks, we're going to walk through Paul's letter to Philippi, the church there. And we're going to see that not only can we be content in all things, whether it's cold or whether it's hot or whether we have water or whether we don't have water, we can be content in all those things. And that contentment leads to joy. And that joy can shine through us into the darkness of the world. And we can show that joy. We can be light therapy to the world. Now, I said we're going to go through the book of Philippians, but actually first we're going we're to go back a little bit in the Bible. We're going to take a look at the book of Acts chapter 16. Book of Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote Luke. And it tells of the birth of the church. It tells of the gospel being spread first in Jerusalem and then Judea, then Samaria. And it starts to show how the gospel spreads through the rest of the world in this early church. And we, in Acts chapter 16, we first see a mention of this city called Philippi. And just before Acts 16, we see that Paul had recently had a little falling out with one of his ministry partners, and he uh, partnered up with somebody new, and they started traveling around what they called Asia Minor. It's kind of a modern-day Turkey. And they started uh, traveling, Paul started traveling with this man named Silas. And Paul and Silas started by going to churches that had already been established. So they went to uh, Thessaloniki, which is where the Thessalonians lived. They went to a couple of other churches over in that area that had already been established and they were just kind of helping along for a while. And in Acts 15:41, uh, it says that they were strengthening the churches. And then we pick up in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas come to this place called Lystra, and they meet a young man named Timothy. And we read in Acts 16, 1 and 2, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And we learn a little bit about Timothy uh, when we read Paul's letters to him, and especially in 2 Timothy 1.5, uh, we see, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And when he says, now I am sure, it's not a doubt kind of thing. What he's saying is, I have traveled with you. I have ministered with you. Now I am sure. It is evident that Christ lives in you. So this is Timothy, and he kind of joins up with this whole party. 
And Timothy went along with Paul and Silas. He was kind of a helper. Most people think he was a scribe. He kind of wrote down everything, right? So when we read some of the letters from Paul, including the book of Philippians, Timothy is the one that's writing down what Paul is dictating, kind of like a secretary. So it's likely that uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're all traveling together. They've kind of got this, this hierarchy. Paul and Silas are here. Timothy's the helper. And they're strengthening the churches. And then they travel through this Asia Minor. And then first, uh, they finally come to enter into the country of Greece. And the Bible tells us uh, that the team was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So this is what's happening here um, in Acts chapter 16. They're traveling through this country and, and the Holy Spirit is telling Paul and Silas, no, you can't go into this area. You don't want to go east. I'm going to send you west. And as they approach the northern coast of Asia, there's this little isthmus that they cross over to get into Greece. And while they're, in, while they're up at that northern part, we read in 9 and 10, a, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, Macedonia is in Greece. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we have Paul, we have Silas, we have Timothy. And we have Luke. Luke, somewhere along the line, joins this company of people because Luke is the author of the book of Acts. And anytime we see something where he's talking about we do this or we do that, he's talking about himself. So now we have this whole kind of little um, missionary team that's getting ready to travel over into uh, Greece. And in Acts 16.10, there's this shift, and we see Paul, who has wanted to go into Asia. This is where he thought he was supposed to be going. And the Holy Spirit tells him, no, you're not going to go over here. You're supposed to go over here. And Paul obeys. And he and his team, they uh, take a boat. They set sail from Troas. They made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to, to uh, Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And they were there for a lot of days. The, the, they think probably a week or two that Paul and uh, Silas and his team uh, set up there in Philippi. And Philippi, it was, if you, if you read about Philippi, it was a leading city in Greece. It was situated between two rivers, which made it a nice harbor town, so they had a lot of trade. It was situated along this road called the Via Ignatia, or the Ignatius Road. And this was a 700-mile road that stretched all the way across Greece. So all the way over here on the west, you had the Aegean Sea. I'm sorry, the Adriatic Sea. And all the way over here on the other side of the road was Turkey, Asia Minor. So this road that the Romans built stretched all the way across the country. And why would they build a road like that? 
because there were a lot of towns, a lot of cities along that southern portion of Greece where they could trade. And they wanted to have a trade route. And that trade route would lead all the way to the Adriatic Sea. You take a, a boat, you go across the Adriatic a little bit, and there's Rome. So we kind of get this setup of, what, uh, of, of where Philippi was and how it was situated and why it was so important to the Romans. And of course, it was also important because it had several gold mines that would put out about 75,000 pounds of gold a year. So it was a rich city. There were a lot of tradespeople making a lot of luxury items like we're going to see in a minute. So this was an important place. And it was also the first time that Paul left the area where Israel was to move into Europe. So now we're in Europe. Now we're in the middle of the southern part of Greece. And there's Paul and there's Silas. So Philippi was certainly a leading city and a Roman colony. But we read on in Acts 16, 13, that after Paul and Silas and his team got there, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together there. Now, if you know anything about Paul at all, and, and some of you do, some of you don't, every time Paul would enter a city or a town, the very first thing he would find was a synagogue. He would look for the synagogue. He would look for the Jewish folks that were there that would worship. But he's in Europe now. There was no synagogue. There were barely any Jewish people there at all. So Paul figured, well, if they didn't have a synagogue, usually what would happen is the Jewish people would leave the city on the Sabbath day, not traveling very far, and they would find a place there to worship God and to pray. And this is what Paul found on that first Sabbath that he was there. And he found some women, and apparently only women. There were no Jewish men in the town at the time. And we go on, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the town of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia was a rich woman. Lydia, uh, Lydia had this trade where she created purple clothing. Purple dyed clothing was a luxury item, and she made a lot of money. She had her own house, which was pretty unheard of for a woman in that time, except that, of course, we're in Europe now. Things are a little more progressive. And actually, uh, if you read the history of Philippi, it was most of the influential people there were women. The business owners, uh, the people who were involved in trade, the people who were even involved in some of the government were women. And this, too, was new to the church because most of the time the leaders of a local congregation uh, or a local synagogue would be the men. But that didn't stop Paul. 
Paul shared the gospel with Lydia, and he shared the gospel with the rest of these women that were sitting at, by that river on the Sabbath day. And Lydia wasn't a Jew. She was a Gentile. She had learned some Jewishness. She had learned some Jewish things because she used to live close to Israel. But she was a Gentile. And Paul shared the gospel with her. And when he shared the gospel with her, Lydia accepted it because God had opened her heart. And a lot of times we, we look at the Bible, we look at scripture, and a lot of times people have a lot of criticism about the Bible, that the Bible is anti-women. The Bible is misogynistic. The Bible is this against women and that against women. But we start to see Christ's church, including women in the ministry. Most Bible historians think that when Lydia invited Paul and Silas and Timothy to stay at her house, that that's where Paul established the first church in Europe in the house of a Gentile woman, a rich Gentile woman. And this was significant. This was not something that had ever been done by the church before. As we continue reading, we find that Paul and his friends must have stayed with Lydia the whole time they were there because they would go back and forth to this, this place of prayer and they would have their daily prayer times and they would walk back and forth from her house. And then, of course, on the Sabbath, they would go and they would have their time of worship. Uh, they would read from the Torah. They would do all of those things. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to 24, we read one of the days that they were uh, heading back to the house of prayer, or the place of prayer. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Anybody ever been annoyed? Anybody ever been annoyed by somebody telling you the truth? Oh, we don't like it when people tell us the truth about ourselves, do we? We get annoyed sometimes. And Paul, he's, he's there, and, and this is happening. This, this girl is following them back and forth between Lydia's house and the, and the river. And, and every day, she's shouting out this, this statement. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Why would Paul be annoyed that somebody is telling the people who they are and what they're doing? Why would that be annoying? And I've read, I, I, I got to say, this, this is one of those things that was like, I really wanted to know, why is Paul annoyed? Because this is, just seems weird to me. It seems counterintuitive. If she's going to tell people that you're preaching the gospel, well, then preach the gospel. That's, that was my thinking on this. And I read a lot of commentaries, man. I must have went through 20 commentaries this week trying to figure out what was annoying Paul. Because we have this slave girl, right? We have this spirit that is in her. 
And we have the girl's owners. And the girl's owners made a lot of money because this girl had a spirit within her that was able to discern and speak the truth. She was able to fortune tell. She was able to tell people what was going to happen. And they were making a lot of money. And the girl, she tells the truth about Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and everybody else that were with them. There's nothing untrue about her statement. The reason that Paul was annoyed, or one of the reasons that Paul was annoyed, is because, first of all, this girl was speaking with a spirit that was not of God. This girl was speaking with the spirit of a demon. And we read in Scripture over and over again that the demons know who Jesus Christ is and they tremble. But that doesn't mean that they are preachers of the gospel. We read that Satan knows all of Scripture. He uses Scripture to tempt Jesus Christ in the garden right before he starts his ministry. So she knows the truth. She can even speak the truth. But she's not speaking the truth in order to spread the gospel. She's not speaking the truth in order to get an audience for these guys to come and preach Jesus to them. She is only speaking the truth because her owners are making money. Her owners are greedy. And they want her to use this demon that's inside of her to continue making them money. Now, I also read some commentary that says that Paul actually did the slave girl more harm than good by casting the demon out of her. You know, well, they, Paul should have left the demon inside of her because now that the demon's not in her anymore, she doesn't have a way to make money for her owners and her owners will probably throw her out or treat her badly or kill her. This is some of the things that people have written about this, uh, about this event. One commentator wrote that Paul should have been more forward-thinking I'll always love that term, forward thinking. But here's the whole situation. It's not that this girl was following around and getting in their face and saying, hey, these guys are doing this and these guys are doing this. It's that this demon was being used by the girl's owners to make money. And it didn't matter what she said as long as this demon helped her to speak the truth. And this demon was known as a python demon. And we don't have time to go into the whole python demon and the Greek things and everything like that. But the python demon guarded the oracle at Delphi. And in Greek mythology, the oracle of Delphi is where you went if you wanted to find the truth. If you wanted to have somebody tell you what was going to happen. And that's what this demon was doing. Now, Paul may or may not have cared about this girl. We don't read in the scripture that he cared or that he didn't care one way or the other about the girl. I'm sure that he did. I'm certain that he did because he's a follower of Jesus Christ and he would have loved this girl 
we see is Paul casting out this demon. Paul wants to release this girl from the prison that this demon is holding her in. And Paul cared about the message of the gospel. Paul wanted the gospel to be proclaimed in a way that would please God. And this was not the way. So we have this girl, her demon is cast out. I believe that it was a good thing. I think Paul believed that it was a good thing. But most of all, Paul was greatly annoyed that these greedy, selfish people would use the gospel to line their pockets. Do we know anybody like that today? That uses the gospel in order to become rich? Does it annoy us? Should it annoy us? Maybe. But this is what's happening. Paul wanted to preserve the message of Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. And it turns out, Paul was right to be greatly annoyed at these people who were trying to make money off of the gospel because right after this happened, when the owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They're not disturbing our city. They're disturbing your pockets. But they bring them before these guys. This, this, these people are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Most historians don't really know what that means. Most historians think that that's just a vague, like, overarching umbrella of a charge to just get people in trouble that it really doesn't have anything meaningful behind it, except maybe that the Roman government controlled religion. And Christianity certainly was not condoned by the Roman government. Maybe that's it, but that's the only thing that most commentators can find. And we don't see anything in scripture that tells us anything different. But the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So... Paul and Silas, and they're the only two that we read about that are actually sent to prison. We don't know what happened to Timothy and Luke. Either they escaped or they weren't arrested in the first place because they weren't actually doing any of the talking. But Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. Paul's ministry was over. There was nothing else that Paul could absolutely do to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ because he was in prison. Do you believe that to be true? No, because we read on at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were hearing this relationship that Paul and Silas had with God the Father. 
They were singing about him. They were praying to him, and the prisoners were just sitting there listening. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfashioned. Everybody's shackles were open. Every prisoner in the prison could escape. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He was going to kill himself because that would have been much better than what would have happened to him had his bosses come and discovered that everyone in the prison had escaped while he was sleeping. And he was ready to kill himself. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. Nobody left. Paul and Silas, obviously, they would probably stay. They, they, they just were there. They were innocent anyway. But what about all of the guys that were in prison that weren't innocent? Here was their shot. Here was their chance. They could have bolted out the door, been in the wind, and gone. What caused them to stay? What caused them to stay was the witness of Paul and Silas. What caused them to stay was the power of God. Because Paul and Silas didn't stop singing hymns and praying to God after their shackles were opened. They kept going. And every person there stayed. They listened. They watched the light of Christ shining in Paul and Silas. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He couldn't believe that everybody was still there. Then he brought them out, brought them out of their cell, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He called them sirs. He called them a name with utter respect. These prisoners who had been put into his care. And he understood because he had heard the singing. He had heard the, the praying. He understood that God was working in that prison on that day. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is what happened on Paul's first visit to Europe. He got thrown in jail. Wendy doesn't want to go to Europe because she's afraid something will happen and somebody will steal our passports or we'll get in trouble and we won't ever be able to come home again. A couple of people are saying, yeah, me too. 
Paul got thrown in jail for his ministry. But his ministry didn't stop. His ministry continued and his witness, his actions led to the salvation of a Roman family. And do you think that that Roman soldier is going to tell other people about what happened? Oh, I think so. And now the gospel spreads to the uttermost part of the earth. We're out of Asia Minor. We're out of Judea and Samaria. We are now moving. Paul and Silas, they could have run from prison. But they were content to stay. Jailer knew why they were there. They were preaching the gospel. The jailer heard the singing. Jailer heard the praying. And when he learned that Paul and Silas stayed where they were supposed to stay, in that prison, and they stopped him from killing himself, they could have been quiet and said nothing. But they wanted to protect this jailer. They were content to save his life. And he understood the jailer that Paul and Silas lived what they preached. They weren't just walking around trying to make a quick buck with religion like most of the other religions in Europe. They believed what they preached and they lived what they preached and the jailer wanted that. The jailer wanted to be saved. He wanted Jesus Christ. Now we know that the Holy Spirit opened that jailer's heart. Paul and Silas shined Jesus' light into that heart. Paul and Silas, they were released the next day. And we don't even know why. There's no reason given why the magistrate comes to release them the next day. And we don't have a whole lot of time uh, left this morning, but read Acts 16, 35 to 39. It's an entertaining little story about how um, Paul and Silas left the prison that day. You might get a smile out of it. But Paul, Tom, uh, Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy and Luke and all of the people that were traveling with them, they gathered back at Lydia's house. They received encouragement, which we can assume meant prayer. And they left Philippi. And they were bound for their next town from the next missionary journey. And next week, when we pick up in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to see that the church of Philippi has been established for a while by then. And Paul has a lot of really important things to say about them and to them. But for this morning, I want you to think about this. Paul Listen to God when God used a dream to keep him out of Asia and to move him west into Europe. Paul listened to God. Paul used every opportunity that he had to teach, to preach, to pray, to baptize new Christians. He used every opportunity. Remember, he was only there a few days. He refused to let the gospel be cheapened for the gain of evil men. 
And he lived out his faith while shackled to a jail cell floor. All of these things that Paul did, he could only do in one way. Through the strength of the Holy Spirit. And because Paul believed that the strength of the Holy Spirit was enough, he continued spreading the gospel through the ends of the earth. And as we live out our faith, as we think about the things that we go through here in East Berlin, or in Dillsburg, or in East Pennsburg, or wherever we are during our days, do we rely on the Holy Spirit to give us strength to share the gospel? Do we rely on the Holy Spirit even when things look bad? Paul put himself at great risk preaching the gospel. Our risk is not nearly so great. I don't think any of us have gotten beaten with rods for saying the name of Jesus at our workplace. I don't think any of us have been imprisoned for preaching the gospel to people. We might be someday, but not right now. And not like people in China or in Muslim countries where it literally is illegal to say the name Jesus. Here in the United States, what do we risk? We do have risks. We may not risk prison, but we might risk relationships. How many of us live in families where our relatives don't want us talking about Jesus when we get together for Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter or birthdays or whatever? The gospel can cost us relationships. We might risk losing our jobs. Educators, you know this very well. We could risk losing our jobs for trying to share the gospel with people. Staff, students, anybody. We might risk being canceled. Anybody heard of cancel culture? You say the wrong thing and man, you're done. That's it. It's just a really cool term for being ostracized by the world, cut off. But these are the questions that we must answer as Christians. And as we enter into 2023, I want, you to, I want, I want to invite you to answer these questions fresh and new. You may have asked them to yourselves before. But ask them again. Is the gospel worth the risk. Is it worth the risk to you? Because Jesus once said, if we deny him before men, he will deny us before the Father. Are the people, the souls for whom we shine Christ's light, are they worth the risk? Is your coworker worth the risk? Is your fellow student worth worth the risk 
Will I share the gospel with that person at the risk of my job or at the risk of being ostracized? The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And it says that he is patient. He is waiting for people to hear the gospel message. Who's he waiting for? Us. His church. He is waiting for us to share the gospel with people. Are we willing to take those risks in order to see souls being saved? And those are hard questions to answer. They're not comfortable questions to ask. But as we enter into this new year, we've already seen there's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of people that want to silence God. They want to silence Christianity. We're supposed to be light. If the light's put out, there's nothing but darkness. So I encourage you, be in prayer. Think about those questions. Think about what risks you're willing to take for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And next week, we're going to start learning about the things that Paul and his partners have gone through since their first visit at Philippi when we go into Philippians chapter 1. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we just ask for strength. We ask for strength to shine the light of Jesus Christ. Even if it costs us things on earth. Even if it costs us jobs. Even if it costs us standing in the community. even if it costs us relationships. Father, help us to know and to, and to live those great commandments that Jesus spoke. To love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, let us love our neighbors so much that we are as willing as Jesus Christ was to lay down everything in our lives so that their souls might be saved. We thank you, Father, for working in and through us every day. We ask that you would continue to strengthen us. And we thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Scripture tells us that the angels rejoice when one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. If every one of us shines our light this week into our world, how much rejoicing might the angels do? I encourage you, pray for strength, pray for courage, and pray for those people who still need to know who Jesus Christ is and need to know His saving power and his saving grace. God bless you this week.